0: by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager,
1: and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something.
2: It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet.
3: Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me today is a man who it seems it's just impossible to get rid of. Every time he thinks he's escaped, we manage to claw him back into the primitive culture fold. We we get him uh, back in our village, so to speak. And uh, here he is
0: once again. It's Tony Black. I've been repeatedly gassed in my home and I wake up and suddenly (laughs) a voice on a tannoy that sounds like Duncan Barrett welcomes me (laughs) to the... Welcome to Primitive Culture. Yeah, it's nice to be back. And uh, we may be slightly sort of uh, hinting at the topic we're going to (laughs) cover this time. We are talking today
3: about a classic of science fiction television the DS9 episode, Move Along Home. <laughs> but also, uh, <laughs> we're looking at something else as well. I, uh, To be honest, Move Along Home is not, An episode that I ever expected us to cover uh, on Primitive Culture. But it, as ever, was one of these episodes that came out of me just flicking through the DS9 Companion, which I've mentioned many times is, you know, one of the best Trek reference books out there. Uh, And I discovered that the episode Move Along Home was inspired in part by an episode of the uh, iconic cult 1960s uh, sci-fi, spy, psychedelic, weird Crazy <laughs> random uh, TV show, The Prisoner, which I know that you, Tony, uh, are a big fan of. Yeah. So I thought, well, okay, if there's some kind of uh, influence
0: going on here, this is something we just have to talk about. It's one of those things where it never occurred to me until you said it to me and you said, "Yeah," and then and then suddenly I, I watched it, and this was a while ago before I rewatched it for this podcast, and I went, ah, "Yes, how?" Did we not notice this? And I suppose we didn't notice it because the prisoner is it's something that's obviously came out before you and you or I were born. We discovered it much much later. Uh and it was something more our, our parents generation would have would have had when they were young. And I suppose for a lot of people that when they first watched Move Along Home, it would have been pretty obvious or they would have potentially seen these these connections, but it's kind of become a bit of a lost sort of inspiration, I think. In in Star Trek. I don't even
3: know. Do you do you think I mean, I have to say what rewatching it
0: now, I can see I can see
3: some of those influences. I do sort of wonder, um I mean, reading into it more, looking into the D S Nine Companion and so on, it sounds like this was an episode that and you would be forgiven for guessing this from watching the finished episode but it was a a slightly troubled episode they went through many different scripts many different writers having a crack at it and I don't know how much of how many of the ideas sort of filtered through or how it got changed in all these various drafts and redrafts and so on I don't think it's an episode that anyone was really happy with by the sounds of it partly the director was unhappy because they'd had budget cuts because apparently they went over budget on Emissary and this was one of the ones where they were kind of looking for ways of uh, uh, (laughs) knocking a bit of money off the of the budget i suppose one way or another just creatively it seemed like something that people were were struggling with i mean it it's kind of interesting just to have a look at what they say about it in the companion they say it received partial inspiration from the old prisoner episode checkmate and the reason for this is the episode checkmate in particular features this very uh, iconic scene which is a game of chess being played with real people as the chess pieces and because one of the big themes of the prisoner is the idea of um sort of individual freedom versus uh control by a sort of state body or by kind of um, a a group or whatever there's this kind of thematic thing going on about you know being the pawn basically or being a chess piece that's being moved at someone else's uh, will so obviously this idea of kind of the the game blurring the the line between what's real and and what isn't, and the idea of the the pieces in the game, as you see in Move Along Home, actually being real people. But apparently, according to the companion, it says the original idea was that the crew would get caught up in a sort of village-like atmosphere, sort of surreal. The village is the weird... Crazy place in the prisoner. And then it was too expensive to build sets to kind of create that world. I mean, one of the strengths of the prisoner, I think anyone would say is, is it's filmed in this place in Wales. I think it's in Wales, right? Port Merion, this kind of holiday resort, which is itself a very bizarre, uh, eclectic mix of styles. It's a, it's a very strange looking place and it lends the show a lot of this kind of surreal, um, it, it just, just sort of weird weirdness almost, because it's got this sort of twee English thing. It's got this sort of continental vibe. It's got this kind of, it's, it, it's mad basically. So they didn't manage to do that. And then they were thinking, would they do it on one of their existing, you know, like the kind of standing backlots they have for, you know, New York or whatever, and try and try and do it that way. And then in the end, they started, decided to do it in those, in, in that sort of maze of virtually identical rooms. Which, in a way, it always makes me wonder whether the people who made the film Cube a few years later were kind of mm. inspired by this episode. You wonder to do like a, a version <laughs> of that where everyone just gets brutally murdered, rather than in Move Along Home where nothing bad happens
0: to anyone. I, I, I recorded a, a podcast once with the director of Cube, Vincenzo Natali. Oh wow! Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm both on the Projection Booth, which is a really good uh, film podcast. Mm-hmm. So if only I'd have thought of that, <laughs> I could have said, uh, yeah. move along home. And then see, see if he went, a And then I would have known, you know.
3: <laughs> I could have asked Nicole De DeBur when we were interviewing her um, yeah. uh, last, last October. But, you know. If only. It didn't come up. It didn't yeah. come up. The, <laughs> the other funny nugget, just uh, by the way, that, that is in the DS9 Companion that I love about this episode, is because it was such a cursed episode and because everyone had so much trouble with it, uh, apparently the word a moraine became a kind of... Uh, like, like, like a sort of uh sort of code word or a kind of uh, an expression on the ds9 set so whenever anyone screwed up or something went horrifically wrong uh members of the crew would just shout out ala that was, <laughs> was like a sort of um an indication of like total total screw up basically
0: one way or another. i mean ma- maybe we should just uh take a brief detour it and, and give a little bit about the prisoner itself because there might be people who haven't really heard of this show or don't really know much about it so the prisoner was you can do that i don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm not I'll, volunteering I'll to give try it a little bit. Explain i'll try way. trying to explain the prisoner is a bit like trying to explain uh, a, a a rubik's cube you know that isn't quite fitting together it's essentially a show that is which from the 1960s i think it aired between 1967 and 1968 and it was a one season show um in the from the uk uh, which aired on a channel called ITC at the time. And it starred Patrick McGowan as a, a secret agent, a British secret agent who decides to quit one day and he goes home. He's about to pack up his bags and he's leaving. And then suddenly gas comes into his home and he wakes up and he's in, as you described this a village and it's called the village and he is designated, we never know his name, he's designated number six. And in every episode of The Prisoner, there are about uh, 17 episodes of The Prisoner. In each episode of The Prisoner, he's attempting to find out where he is, what happened to him, why he's been kidnapped. And ultimately, the people who control the village are these very mysterious, It's it's a mysterious organisation. You never quite know what, who they are. Represented by a character called Number Two, who in every single episode is played by a different guest actor, usually quite a famous guest actor from the sixties TV movie world, and it grows increasing. That's that's the essential premise. It's a man trying to escape this strange, un- otherworldly kind of w- creepy old sort of Victorian England at times style village that, like you say, isn't quite doesn't quite fit that at the same time and. All kinds of surrealism happens. And as the show develops, it gets more and more strange. To the point where the final episode... I remember you messaging me, Duncan, when you are watching it going, I've no idea <laughs> what's going on in this final It is really, really absurdist and, you know, almost Salvador Dali-esque by the end. Mm. It sort of gets...
3: Incre- even like the, the final sort of three or four episodes, I think it gets increasingly bizarre somehow. Because I feel like up to that point, it has kind of flashes of psychedelic weirdness. The the kind of basic setup is uncanny and quirky and, you know, everyone's sort of walking along and then stopping all of a sudden. There's a lot of people kind of laughing maniacally and there's, there's kind of weird, weird touches that makes it quite sort of nightmarish, I suppose. But it feels like there is a sort of basic reality like it's sort of grounded in some way and then towards you get later on there's an episode for example which is is basically a western and uh and number six is suddenly taking (laughs) part in this western it's only in like the last five minutes that there's a kind of rational explanation for why we're seeing that and it turns out that is kind of one of these mind games they're playing with him they kind of rigged him up in a certain way to uh, kind of almost like a holodeck experience or something there are these kind of cardboard cutouts representing some of the other characters that he's interacting with in the western so at the very end it does sort of fit back into the context of the show but for the majority of the episode it's it seems completely random it makes no sense you wonder what on earth is is kind of going on there then there's another one where it's basically a spy story it's very weird spy story out and about you know not set in the village and then the last scene is him reading a storybook and it's like okay this was a story he was telling to this group of kids and it has this weird the show itself is quite kind of allegorical, but it also, even these, these very random episodes sort of allegorically represent the rest of the show, if you know what I mean. So elements of that story that hit this sort of fancy story that he tells these kids seem to play out again. And the same sets are used and the same actors are used and so on in the actual finale for the show, which, as you say, is utterly baffling and it almost dismantles reality to a level. You know, beyond what, what the show had done before. And it's kind of interesting, actually, thinking of, of Deep Space Nine. I mean, it's the, the final episode of The Prisoner. I don't want to spoil it too much in some ways, because I think it is, it is something to be experienced once you've watched the whole series. But it reminded me a little bit of there was this story with Deep Space Nine that Ira Stephen Bear wanted to end DS9 as Benny Russell's dream um, <laughs> yeah. and basically yeah. dismantle the whole series and say none of this ever happened and, and you, you know, this was all uh, a kind of imaginary story or something. I think, I mean, this is director I think that's a terrible idea and I'm glad that no one allowed him to do it in, in this instance. But, I mean, it shares that kind of impulse for, like, really going for it at the end rather than having an ending that kind of answers all the questions and tidies everything up and kind of makes sense of everything, really going for an ending that is just going to, baffle and enrage and confuse people uh, even more than everything you've been doing up to that point I mean I think like the ending of Lost was nothing to the ending of Prisoner they they were you know Patrick McGowan had to go into hiding I think because people were so angry
0: he he did I mean obviously we weren't alive at the time but yeah it was one of the first uh, you know examples of a TV show where everyone was desperate to know how this was going to end and uh, and everyone just by the end by by the end of Fallout, the final episode, were just reeling, going, "What on earth was that?" You know, unlike something like probably the 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 first major conclusion to a TV show that was really popular around that time, which would have been The Fugitive, which did have a conclusive ending in that you know you found out who uh, the one armed man was and and Richard Kimball was exonerated, and that was a massive TV event in earlier in the '60s, I believe. But then you get to the prisoner and, you know, and, and obviously with Star Trek, with the original series, it didn't really have an ending. You know, there was no; it was cancelled, as we know, after after three seasons. Whereas the prisoner, you know, even though it was one season, it was determined to have an ending. But the ending is nothing, nothing that follows any path of a, tra- even back then, of a traditional story. You know, even when when you look at the uh, you know, some of the earlier 60 Star Trek stories, some of them are a bit are a bit surrealist in themselves and occasionally go down really strange flights of fancy, but they always have an understandable beginning, middle and end, you know? Whereas The Prisoner just doesn't. in, in a lot of the especially towards the end and that finale, it does leave you really really You know, open ended, and obviously, it's not even really clear what happens. No, no, like on a a, sort of fairly basic level, it's not clear
3: what happens. Because I watched it, and at the very end, I felt fairly certain that London had just been destroyed at the end of that episode. (laughs) But actually, I don't know. That, like i don 't know whether that happened or not, do you know what i mean it's, yeah it's yeah. it's like it's it's all in the kind of um illusions and the allegories and the links to other episodes and the kind of hints of things and and uh how you interpret certain things that are kind of impossible to pin down to one meaning or another. I mean, it is like more like a sort of expressionistic piece in some ways. I mean, it, it is very psychedelic. It is almost like a trip in some ways. A lot of the elements of a lot of these episodes. It, it, what's interesting about it, though, I think, is that McGowan himself. You know, he was the big creative force behind this. He wrote a lot of the episodes. He directed a lot of them. The character that he plays. I mean, I, I, I'm not familiar. I know he'd done he'd done famously another spy series before this Danger Man, which I mm. assume was a more conventional uh, spy yeah, series. And this it was, was what yeah was na- known for. But he plays a very kind of straight. Quite sort of terse, quite sort of sarcastic, but very kind of sort of straight down the line kind of guy somehow. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing really wacky about him. There's nothing uh, psychedelic or whatever. He's sort of the straight man at the most he's quite sort of sardonic he has a slight kind of superior attitude and he's the other thing i love about it is he's he's got to be like the least likable uh main (laughs) character in the tv show i mean given that he is the only consistent character from episode to episode because as you say the other you know you know even the antagonist changes from week to week he's he's like just perpetually pissed off. He's very, I mean, <laughs> as you would be in this situation, he's angry. He's kind of rude. He's snide. He's kind of, is he, superior around everyone else. He, he's he got a sort of brutal edge. He's like totally unpleasant man, really. But you do kind of root for him because he's in this mad world and because he has this real uh, sort of integrity, I suppose. And, it, and it's all about like, are they going to break him? Are they going to uh, dismantle his kind of individuality? And ultimately, They're not. And it's funny, I mean, watching it, thinking of it as a kind of contemporary of TOS, there are these kind of sort of psychedelic elements, you know, of the time, which you do see sometimes coming into TOS and even things like just the kind of mad... You know, camera angles and, and and sort of weird stuff like that. But there's also this central character. In some ways, he does remind me a bit of Captain Kirk, because he's absolutely the guy who, you know, if you think of Kirk as the guy who's going to beam down to the mad planet and dismantle their entire society and tell them they're all wrong and never question his own beliefs for a second, it's the same kind of archetype in some ways. This guy who's just totally convinced of his own uh, beliefs and uh, of his own kind of who he is and what is right and what he stands for and so on and societies will sort of crumble. And by the end of The Prisoner, the final episode of The Prisoner, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to go into this. There's a point where it seems like they're basically, from, from having tried to break him for these previous 16 episodes, they have effectively given up and said, Uh, we want you to be our leader now. You, you know, you're the only authentic human being in this society, basically. So he's suddenly being kind of lauded and celebrated rather than being persecuted. And I suppose it's, you know, there's a kind of, heavy sort of Cold War allegory may be going on, you know, if you think of this as something that's coming out of the kind of mid-60s in terms of, you know, the Soviet state and this idea of the individual being This sort of significance of individualism as a kind of Western value, as opposed to this kind of village value, which is, you know, everyone has to be mutual. There's an episode where they talk about him as an unmutual, that that's his kind of, um, his crime in a sense is that he's, he's putting his own individual beliefs and values above those of the, of the group or of the village. So it does definitely show the time that it's coming from in, in some of these ideas. But at the same time, I think compared to anything else on TV, it's just so out there it's so experimental it's so wacky I, I mean much more so than than any star trek episode i think ever has been or, or probably ever will be and maybe that's one reason that when we look at something like move along home one of the reasons that episode maybe doesn't work is it it has to, it has to fit all of that craziness into the star trek box if you know what I mean which I mean you know people talk about Roddenberry we're not we're not talking about Roddenberry's box by this point but it it still has to be a Star Trek episode it still has to you know even to the level of like having the same opening and closing credits I mean the prisoner like they change the credits when they feel like it or they don't have credits or they or they have a teaser when they never had a teaser or they or they don't or Patrick McGowan doesn't get a credit for some bizarre reason or do you know what I mean like they just muck around with anything they like it is very much it's more like an art film as a as a repeating tv show and the weird thing is although um i mean i I think because he was so popular from this previous show danger man he could kind of do whatever he wanted and although he went in saying this is going to be a limited thing i think originally he only wanted to do seven episodes or something he wanted to do it as a sort of mini series and they made they persuaded him to stretch it out to 17 but my understanding is that final bizarre strange episode was not was written quite last minute even so and that he having gone in saying i want to do this limited thing he actually hadn't worked out how it was going to end or what any of the answers were going to be and that's one reason that they end up with this episode which you know doesn't really answer even the most fundamental question which is who is number one because the the antagonist throughout is, is this character called number two uh and there's always you know presumed to be this number one who who is sort of off screen if you know what i mean who's who's really calling the shots and in the final episode he does meet number 1 seemingly but we don't but again like the answer is
0: one that doesn't really make sense if you know what i mean it's kind of like you said the suggestion at the end is that he is actually number 1 and he, he whether he always was or he now is or you know it's it's very it's very strange and it it does leave a lot open to interpretation really and i think it was one of those, The Prisoner is really interesting because it's one of those, it's a very rare ser- series in that the lead actor ends up becoming not just the showrunner, but the lead writer as well. You know, it, when, when it first began, it wasn't just him. It was another guy called George Markstein. And he then ended up leaving the show towards halfway through. And it's at that point when McGowan takes full control that it definitely becomes a lot more experimental and surrealist and trippy and really taps into that sort of vibe at a time when you could get away with, a, in many ways, you get away with a lot on television because it was more cinema. I mean, well, actually, it's funny because that was, 1967 was the year that cinema starts to change as well in the US. It's the time of the so-called new Hollywood. And that's when you start getting films like *Bunny and Clyde, The Graduate, films that really... Push the the countercultural revolution that's been going on in the sixties really push the edge of what is what you can show on TV on, on on the movies the kind of things you can suggest, and the prisoner wasn't it wasn't doing anything like that in in the same sense because actually McGowan was offered the role of James Bond after Sean Connery or maybe even at the beginning actually because it was before Sean Connery because Danger Man where he played a character called John Drake who was a, a, a tr- more traditional secret agent during the late fifties early sixties he was um, courted to become James Bond in Dr. No, and he turned down James Bond because he was a very moralistic man. James, uh, uh, Patrick McGoon, he didn't like the idea of sex violence on TV, on movies. He didn't like the idea of firing a gun. You know, you never, I don't think you ever see number six firing a gun. You know, He was um, very, maybe very much... in the final much, episode, don't you? Or is he maybe. Like, there's a lot of guns. To get it. <laughs> it's kind yeah, of yeah. On a he might do there, then. But- but I think if he was ever going to do that, it would be there would be a point behind it, and there would be a reason. Whereas obviously he didn't want to just become that, you know. And and he could have played Bond. He had the danger. He had the danger to him. He had the, like you say, the he's very. He's been sort a great of, Bond. He's, he he's would have been a great got Bond. Exactly he was that
3: kind of um attitude.
0: Yeah, that urbane, you know, danger and suaveness to him. He would, he would have been very good, but he didn't want to go down that road. So the prisoner doesn't. It doesn't challenge those conventions in the same way that some of these new Hollywood films were as we went into the late 60s that really pushed the boundaries but what it's doing is it's challenging the traditions of what you would see on on television in terms of structure in terms of narrative in terms of experimentation as you're starting to see in certain surrealist films around the same time i think in 1968 we had um the bob raffleson movie head which was uh, all about the monkeys who at the time the band was super popular and it's a really bizarre trippy movie the head, if you—it's really, it's really weird. I think it's on YouTube. It's really strange. So you're getting all this kind of thing come out around this time, and there's a, there is a certain freedom, particularly on television, to do that. And what what I found interesting when thinking about how the prisoner and influenced something like Move Along Home is, and you've kind of suggested this earlier, is that by the time the '90s came around, you had you did have far less of that experimentation over the last few decades in the run up to that. But I think in the nineties, you start seeing a little bit of that creep in again into TV. I think you start seeing a few more. I mean, Deep Space Nine, its very concept was challenging and experimental, you know, in, in, in the, in the very framework within what Star Trek was doing, within what science fiction was doing. You had that and Babylon five at the same time, which had very similar concepts and really sort of, you, challenge the the conventions of storytelling in a different way. Whereas The Prisoner was throwing everything in the air and you didn't know what to expect and it was going down surrealist tangents, things like Deep Space Nine were pushing at the edges of how how you tell a story, you know, when you have serialisation, when you have ongoing character arcs, things that you just didn't get in network television as much, particularly through the 80s, unless it was a soap. And actually, I mean, interestingly, The Prisoner, although it's not...
3: It's sort of playing a weird game with serialization because uh, the, the the order of the episodes, if you watch them, it, it's quite clear that they're not in the correct order, so to speak. I mean, in some ways, it was the order was kind of randomised, and and whichever episode was done was ready at what time was kind of put forward. Do, do, do you know what I mean? It kind of got bumped up or got bumped down or whatever. And and in America, they didn't show at least one episode, and and they 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 switched the order around. So like the the third, sec- or maybe the second episode is actually one of the later, ep- you, you know, it's a really good episode, but it's clearly one of the later episodes. And it's obvious that it's out of sequence because this number two that keeps changing, uh, it's the wrong, it's the, it's the, it's the number two that is, that is in the show later on. Um, and by the time you get to the end, I mean, you said when I, uh, messaged you earlier this week saying, I'm not sure I'm going to get through the whole lot. And you said, well, make sure you watch the last one. Well, actually, I did get through the whole lot. And I'm glad that I watched the last sort of stretch of them, even though they weren't typically my favorite episodes because, I felt like it did start to become more sort of serialized and things started to get picked up week by week, even if in a kind of allegorical or kind of, you know, not necessarily a totally literal way. And the last episode actually, I think is the only one that basically has a, you know, previously on the prisoner effectively before the credits, because the penultimate episode, which is very different and very weird in a whole, whole, I mean, completely balmy in a whole different way where basically it's this sort of mind game where the, the 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 number two at the time is sort of trying to take him back to his childhood and go through his whole life and his development and so on and try and get inside his head that way but that leads directly into the final episode to the extent that you do need to if not i've seen it you need that recap i mean that seems quite bold for the sixties especially because it's it's not doing it's not the menagerie part one and two it's it's not like a two part story but it is one story that is kind of fairly self-contained but absolutely leads into the next story you know so it is kind of a two-part finale but to like we see the two-parters in ds9 compared to other star trek where the two parts are might be very different but they're kind
0: of you you need to watch them together if you know what i mean it it was it was something that you were i think you found that tv shows did less you know less often and 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 I think, I think that the, it is interesting when you think about the prisoner with serialization because it doesn't work in terms of serialization as you'd think of it now. You know, it is, it's a very different kind of beast. It, but, but, but again, it's another one of those reasons why it's, it, it did leave a mark and it did inspire. And I think that what I really like about it is that you, you are completely left without any real sense of, Confirmation about anything. And you don't get many TV shows like that, particularly in, 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 the, in, in nowadays. You know, everything has to have some, most, the most TV shows have to have some level of explanation by the end of it or some context in which you can form some sort of opinion. I mean, can you, can you imagine what social media would have been like had the prisoner aired these days? I mean, it would have, it would have been terrifying. <laughs> the discourse around it would have been unbelievable. I mean, it's um, like
3: the ending of The Sopranos. Oh, for 50 minutes. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's exactly, like, it's, it's not yeah. just, it's not just a confusing final, scene, or, 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 or like I say, lost, or you, you know, I mean, we do get these shows where they have very divisive endings, but it's just bizarre on a level that is, is kind of extraordinary. And I, I think it does really push the boundaries in terms of what we expect from TV, because maybe, you know, like I say, it does sort of feel like an art film. We do expect that kind of experimental work in the cinema more. We expect television to be much more kind of packaged and neat and kind of tidy. And I suppose that's why I'm kind of wondering, I mean, you were saying, you know, did these kind of 60s ideas sort of come back in the 90s? And I think arguably you could say that 90s Trek, you do get these episodes that have this kind of wacky, almost psychedelic, almost trippy kind of quality. I mean, I'm thinking something like the Thor in Voyager, which has that kind of creepy circus thing. And in DS9 as well, you do quite often get, then in Trek generally, you get these kind of sort of mind, uh, kind of mind bleepery um, episodes where you get, you know, going inside someone's mind or inside someone's thoughts or whatever, which is very much the kind of things that are coming out of the prisoner as well, the different ways that they're trying to break him or to get information. They keep saying, we need information, we need information um, out of his brain. It reminded me actually a bit of the um, episode right at the end of DS9 where Bashir and O'Brien go inside Sloane's brain and this idea that you can kind of, represent uh, someone's unconscious or someone's, uh you know, sort of mental landscape that you can kind of visualise that and explore that and it can become a kind of labyrinth or a maze or, or whatever it is. You know, you do see these ideas kind of cropping up, certainly in Star Trek, quite often going into the 90s. But I do sort of wonder whether part of the reason that Move Along Home doesn't really work so well is that I'm not sure how effective those episodes ever really are. I'm, I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of one that I, I think is really like a classic Star Trek episode. Do you know what I mean? I mean, even that episode going into Sloane's brain or Sloane's mind or whatever, for me is the weak link in that final 10 episode stretch. And it's quite sort of starkly the weak link. Do you know what I mean? Because there's something kind of slightly silly about it. There's something slightly kind of hokey about it. You're kind of always aware I feel with those episodes that they are kind of bottle shows they are saving money they are just filming using existing sets and lighting them differently and 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 you get that with move along home you know with this set that is basically every room is sort of almost identical and they kind of move the walls like i say with i mean with cube it was literally like what's the cheapest way to make uh this kind of horror film okay we just have the same room again and again and again and we move move the camera move the walls and then just keep filming in there for you know weeks on end or whatever i don't know so i sort of wonder does that kind of crazy, psychedelic, kind of wacky, weirdy world that the prisoner, I think, makes genuinely, if not scary, then at least generally unsettling, disturbing. Um, I mean, particularly in the, fa- in the final episode, the bit where he does meet number one, I found that quite disturbing and strange and weird. You, you know, whereas I don't know, does the, the clown character in the Thor, for example, as much as I love Michael Mc michael mckean is that michael mckean yeah. yeah as much as i love him as much as i think it's great as much as i love like the final moments of that episode there there is nothing really scary about that episode there's nothing really that unsettling or disturbing about it somehow i feel like star trek struggles to hit that kind of uncanny creepy uh sort of mind bleepery thing maybe because as a sort of franchise it is so kind of rational it is so kind of do you, do you know what i mean it is such a kind of constructed, carefully constructed world somehow, it can't be as free and as loose and as kind of crazy almost as as something like the prisoner where we're not really
0: sure what the rules are or if there are any. One of the things when we were back back and forth in Over Messages, we were talking about the prisoner, and one of the things that we were talking about was how much Patrick McGuin was a very clever man, you know, and how potentially he was a real intellectual. Because I think you've got to be really quite quite intelligent and quite learned in, in some respects to create something that surrealistic and it to work on a on a level that you don't really quite understand why. And you and the level of interpretation and allegory and symbolism is something that even, you know, half a century later you can't really definitively pin down. And you know, you've talked about the fact that you had lots of different themes running through it, totalitarianism, free will you know uh, the 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 idea of of the, the the two cold war superpowers and you know are, are these russians is there something else going on you know all these different things that were very prevalent to the to the time and still are prevalent but i think to do that takes a lot of skill and i think the problem that you find with some of these openly surrealistic episodes of star trek like move along home in the in the in the 90s and you know principally you know and some and some of the late 80s but it's more in the 90s you start to see this stuff in the nineties episodes. It it doesn't work because I think you can't really, you can't really try and do that in a, in some sense. I think it takes both a combination of fierce intelligence and in some respects, a, a real sort of bizarre exp- level of experimentation to really come up with something like that. Whereas I don't, I think sometimes the Star Trek episodes are trying to, too hard to actually replicate that car. I'm not saying they're trying to be the prisoner, because I don't think they are, you know, but I think they're trying to sort of capture an almost kitsch retro surrealism and absurdism that doesn't work because it's being manufactured. Like you say, within this box, within this box of, there has to be, to some extent, you have to explain what the the Thor means, you know, or you have to explain why... Uh, what, what was, it? was it the episode where Bashir's having all those? Was it Distant distant Voices?
3: There's a guy think... who's kind of tele- done something yeah. to his brain, basically. That's yes, right. And he's ageing. and it, yeah,
0: yeah. Now, wouldn't that have been a far more interesting episode had you not really ever known why that was happening to Bashir? And it was, and it, was mis- it was strange and it was odd. But you do, you do at the end understand why. you know? And, and th- th- I think that's, that's part of the problem, in that you can't manufacture that level of... Of absurdism, and I think that that's the thing. with move along home. It tries to do both. It tries to actually tell a story within a, a, log, a logical framework, but try and throw in all these we- all these weird beats into it, and it and it never quite rings true, and it co- comes off as like really ham-fisted, and and particularly in that they're actually trying. To, it's really silly, but they're actually trying to evoke the prisoner, though you know, in many ways. There's lots of aspects to it where they're almost. You know, copying some of those tropes. You know, Cisco actually goes to sleep, and then he wakes up, and he's in this—he's in this room. You know, and that's exactly what happens at the start of every episode of The Prisoner when you see the recap. You know, so it's con, that, that, that episode is consciously trying to do this. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's why it's one of the worst.
3: <laughs> and you've got this element, you, you've got elements also of the village with the wadi and the kind of maniacal laughter, this idea of kind of the sinister mad, this kind of mad society where people are literally like sort of cackling maniacally at times and, and, and this kind of thing. And, and weirdly, we see. You know, even with Dr Bashir, kind of, is he awake or is he asleep? This, uh, behaving very weirdly, like he's standing up, but he seems to be in the middle of a a nightmare. You you know, these kind of weird touches. And yet it doesn't, as I say, it's not quite scary. I mean, the the Alan Moraine song, I suppose, is a good example. It's just ridiculous. And that could Uh. be sinister. Do you know what I mean? You you could, (laughs) like, a little girl with a nursery rhyme. I mean, okay, it's a force field. All it does is it makes people go, and then they're fine two seconds later. But, like... There would be a way of of playing that a bit darker, of making it a bit more sinister, of making it a bit more scary. And I think part of the problem with Move Along Home is: do we ever really buy the stakes? This is not Cube, where people get you know chopped into a hundred pieces by this awful machine. I mean, th- there is a kind of interesting discussion early on where Major Kira sort of says, uh, "Look, this is not a game. As far as I'm concerned, this is deadly serious. We don't know, and, and we don't know." And Quark is kind of assuming that people are dying you know, when he loses a piece, he's assuming that someone is actually dying. And I think really that's kind of the key question. And interestingly, in the episode of The Prisoner that inspired uh, this episode, which was this episode Checkmate, which begins with a chess game played with uh, real people as as chess pieces – which you can go. Apparently, you can go to Port Marion once a year, and the like prisoner, you know, fan club essentially will reenact this chess match one day of the year. Uh, which is I would love seeing. Love Definitely. to go to that. Love <laughs> to, to put in your diary. <laughs> absolutely. But, um, and there's a discussion in that. Although this is not what's happening in the, in in the village. I mean, I mean, the village is kind of a repressive and and cruel place where people might be occasionally kind of. Not necessarily tortured, but like, uh, mistreated in various ways to, to force them to conform. But they mentioned that the, the tradition of this chess game comes from, uh, an older tradition going back generations where an ancestor of the guy who was playing the game, uh, was a count who used to play with, uh, chess with real pieces, uh, who were basically his knights and they would be beheaded as they were taken off the board if you see what I mean so this idea of a game that is a deadly game you know not just playing a silly game with human beings but the idea that the stakes are ultimately very high now the thing about the ds9 episode is it sort of tries to well it try it tries to pretend that the stakes are high that people might actually die in there and actually even with something like the Thor we do get characters dying obviously not any of our characters we get kind of red shirt deaths in there to at least prove that with move along home we know none of our four there's not even a red shirt I mean in a way if they'd sent a red shirt they could have sent that awful uh, security guy who who Odo has a couple of scenes Constable Odo I know I don't know what happened to him he's really I I don't even know his name he was awful random character up in (laughs) Ops who's just kind of (laughs) annoying and in the way if they'd sent him along and he died then mm. that would have upped the stakes. It would have kind of established, okay, so that we're saying it's a game, but actually it's a really serious game. But then at the end, you have this scene where the, the wadi guy is like, hey, it's only a game, you know, which sort of pulls the rug from under the entire episode. Because if it's only a game, then what have we actually been watching? Then what's We've the just point? We've been watching a bunch of people sort of pissing around for you know, 45 <laughs> minutes uh, playing yeah, this really yeah. silly game. Yeah. And, and that's not, dramatic do you you know what I mean and so so the only real drama is that Quark mistakenly believes that something serious is happening and I don't know I do sort of wonder whether that's part of the problem I, I also think it just one reason these Star Trek episodes maybe don't quite necessarily manage to land when they go this sort of surrealistic route or whatever is that that there is a kind of inherent sort of conservatism in the way that maybe a star trek episode is is packaged up even within ds9 which is probably the most uh experimental of the series and it made me think you know when you were saying they they can't go or they can't go far enough or, or or they can't really push it something like farscape actually i'd say is a series that maybe could do those kind of episodes better because the show was more weird in its nature it was it it, you know maybe that's partly from being not having a kind of militarized structure you know you've got Starfleet you've got this kind of um hierarchical structure anyway it's all quite orderly in a certain way Farscape was much more kind of random and ragtag and this bunch of weirdos on a spaceship and and it could go in more weird strange directions I mean Clara and I recorded an episode a few months ago looking at different European sci-fi series and how they kind of differed from Star Trek and I think that is one aspect of star trek that's quite noticeable is that it is very kind of you know sort of formalized and kind of as much as it can be very experimental and one of the things i love about star trek is it can go in very different directions in terms of genre you can get a courtroom drama episode you can get a, a rom-com you can get whatever but it still retains quite a lot of its own you know as, as we said of its own box in a sense to play with and that can be a limiting factor, and sometimes it 's something like even like the lighting, like say when Voyager tries to do really uh creepy dark episodes, the lighting on that show just doesn't really support it somehow, even on d s nine if they want to go dark, they have to go to Empoc Nor or they have to go to Terek in the past, so they can change the lighting um and d s nine you know is much darker and more interestingly lit than any starfleet ship, but it it's things like that that really sort of affect the mood of the, of the episode that are a kind of limiting factor. And you can see why the director was, you know, frustrated with this episode that he, he felt like he wasn't really able to, to do much with it. And I think that's kind of a combination of what are the basic rules of, of doing a Star Trek episode that, that everyone has to kind of play by.
0: Um, They're, they're format breaking, but not experimental quite often. And that, that's, that's the thing. Like you say, they can, they can change genre and you can go from an episode like, um, you know, move along home, which is trying to be a bit absurdist and a bit surrealist while, while, you know, while telling this. And then, like you say, pull the rug under you from under you in one of the worst ways, in one of the cheapest ways and hope it lands, which it doesn't. And then the next episode, I think the next episode is the Nagus. I think. Or you, so you can go then more towards broad comedy and like a gangster movie pastiche you know and and already deep space nine was able to kind of do that you know and each you know quite often you get the kind of format change and and that's that's a real strength star trek has but it very rarely can really pull off truly true absurdism true surrealism true out of side of the box kind of what is this you know and and that's something i think is partly You know, one of the things I think 90s television did, as I mentioned this earlier, is that it tried to sort of tap into that... And you're seeing it again in a way now. You're seeing with, you know, Discovery in itself being, you know, set in the original series timeline, to some extent, is tapping into that retro sort of 60s aesthetic. But you're seeing things happen in, like, loops of, like, 25, 30 years of inspirations... Sort of creeping back in. And I think you had in the nineties a real sort of look back to sixties television, which was really indulging in science fiction, big ideas, big concepts on television. And the nineties was full of that. You know, it's like you mentioned, Farscape. Another great example is Lex, which, which was a really, I don't know if you mentioned Lex on that other episode. We did. Um, I, w- I went back and watched, uh, oh. my sins, the first few episodes of Lex. <laughs> it's quite an experience. It, I mean, it's not really great, but it's, it's, it's really, it's weird. It's weird. And, and that's, and that's it. It, it, it it doesn't have the same conventions that Star Trek does have to package up because what, you know, for, 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 for for better or worse, the next generation did sort of establish a formula that all of the all of the shows across the nineties and into the early noughties pretty much followed, you know, that, that the structural formula per episode was, was repeated and, and Deep Space Nine at its best is when it bends that, is when it becomes more of an ensemble character piece or it, it tells a bit more of a long form story, you know, and it, and it does, it does bend at that, but it still essentially retains the same formula. So I think it's one of Star Trek's strengths, definitely, because I think one of the reasons Star Trek is is does stand up and, and stand the test of time, even when episodes are ropey, like <laughs> move along home, you know, there's always stuff to find even in a ropey episode of Star Trek because it it benefits sometimes from having this structure. And that's one of the things. I mean, much as, much as I do love The Prisoner at the same time, there's no way I could throw on an episode of that like I could Star Trek and just enjoy it of, of it. So I, you know, the only way I could really watch The Prisoner. It's not got that cozy quality. No, that's for sure. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I watched Checkmate in advance of, of this and you can't, you can't just throw, you can't just do it. You, 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 you have to. <laughs> It's not that kind of experience. Usually it would benefit. I wouldn't even say it benefits from watching in like a binge watch because it's not that kind of show either. You know, you, you can you can enjoy it at specific periods of time, but Star Trek you could throw in in the background and you could just have it there lingering in, in, a, in a lovely way as a big fan. And I'm sure many of you listening do this. I know I do. And so I think that's that's a real benefit of it. I think it's interesting how 90s TV does look back on this but it can never quite capture that same... And Mulan Home is a great example. It can never really capture that same particularly 60s strangeness that that you Mm. saw in a lot of those shows. And in some ways it's a shame because actually the Wadi...
3: Are the first aliens we've seen from the Gamma Quadrant. And I mean, you, you know, talking about serialization, there are serialized elements of this in this episode of DS9, in, you know, insofar as there, there is continuity there. There's continuity about Jake and Nog. There's this kind of stuff going on around the, around the plot, but first interaction with a Gamma Quadrant alien. These could have been the most alien aliens we've ever met. Do you know what I mean? These could have been totally different from anything we'd ever seen before on Star Trek. In fact, it's just a guy with a kind of, dodgy beard who looks like he could have been in ABBA or something in a kind of shiny outfit running essentially an escape room is, is what, what we see for the for the rest of the episode and and then at the end saying oh yeah none of it really meant anything and it was all just a game and ha ha, ha and, and then off he goes I mean it, it's like it, they are so unalien. They are so, I mean, the only thing that's alien about them is that they love to play games and isn't that annoying? And, and you know, from a kind of diplomatic point of view, first contact is tricky because they're, they're going on about their games. And then it seems like they've got this sinister thing that they're playing with people's lives and they've got all this power, but then it doesn't really come to anything. It does sort of feel like it was a, a missed opportunity to do something. I mean genuinely, they could have done something different. They could have done something new. they could have used the fact that these are aliens from a new part of the galaxy that Star Trek has never explored before to make something of that and to make something of the fact that you you know even around this game playing thing they could have they could have taken that to a more serious extent they They could have um gone dark with that i mean whether that means killing off random red shirts or however you want to play it, they could have found a way of kind of um uh, making that a, a powerful element of the story. But in fact, of course, they go down the kind of easiest, safest route of not really, um, sort of committing to any of that. And I, and I do think it's a shame. The, the other thing it, this episode always makes me think of, incidentally, as well as, um, well, not as well as The Prisoner, because I hadn't, I hadn't seen The Prisoner before this week, so it wasn't making me think of that until I read it in The Companion. But the thing it always made me think of is the Ian M. Banks novel, The Player of Games. I mean, that was a book, I, I, I've never seen anything saying that this episode was inspired by it, but it sort of crossed my mind because it would have been out there. I think it was published in about 1987, 88, something like that. And that is a book about... The protagonist of that book is a guy who is like the the top game player in this culture in this this culture in the society called the culture and one reason that i think in and banks's novels are interesting in relation to star trek is unusually compared to a lot of science fiction they they share this idea of a kind of fairly utopian post-scarcity society and they talk a lot in this novel about sort of what it's like living in a society where no one really has to work where there's no real threat to anyone where they're they're Culture, their society is 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 very powerful in the galaxy, and we have this central character who basically just plays games. That's kind of what he does in his time. And he writes papers and teaches theory, you know, game theory and and, and the theory of, of different games and so on. And he ends up being sent to this quite sort of backwards society, this empire where everything is all about the game that they play um the, the the name of the the empire is named after their their game and and every i think it's every year or maybe every few years they play this huge tournament basically and whoever wins the tournament becomes the empire emperor and meanwhile uh, and the game is is sort of so complex and so elaborate and it is played with like cards and pieces you know like a traditional kind of board game or whatever but it's so elaborate that your values are supposed to show up in the way that you play to the extent that you you know you're not just playing to win positions so the emperor is the guy who comes out top and then like the 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 generals are beneath him and then the priests or whatever um in, in this kind of societal way but that your own values will kind of come out in in the strategy that you use and that will dictate the policy of this empire for the next uh, year or, or, the, or the next period or whatever so it's sort of this idea of the game that is first of all uh, you know a culture that is obsessed with games to a level that is you know is genuinely kind of fundamental to their society which is something that the, the novel sort of tries to uh, get its head around and this character the, the main character has to get his head around but there's also the other element of it is they are this very backward society there's a lot of stuff about this kind of seedy underbelly of this society something that ian banks is is always very fascinating it's quite sinister it's quite unpleasant and a lot of it is really about this idea of what are the stakes um and is it enough to just play games you've got this kind of game player who like spends his life playing games but he lives in a post-scarcity society there's no money he can't gamble for anything uh so really all he's ever gambling is status a bit like you might say in star trek you know people don't get paid all they can accumulate really is uh good you know the the sort of good opinion of other people and then he goes to the society where they gamble to the most extreme extent on this game you know not only does your whole position in society get dictated by it but they gamble bodily consequences so you you might uh offer a finger or you might in some of the more extreme examples you know someone will gamble um that, uh, that if they lose this particular round of the game they're going to be raped or that someone's going to be mutilated in some way so it's this really this sense of this society which is not only very alien in that it has this weird obsession but there's something quite horrific about it almost it just sort of makes me think it makes you think of the kind of missed opportunity with the wadi that yes they a society that's obsessed with games but it doesn't really mean anything somehow um you know and what What do games kind of represent? I mean, games are battles of a kind. They are a sort of, um, you know, are they a kind of insight into the soul? I mean, with The Prisoner, you have all these episodes where they they use... uh, scheme after scheme after scheme to try and get inside number six's head you know whether that's making him think he's in a western whether it's kind of uh introducing someone who looks like him as a kind of doppelganger all these kind of psychological warfare in a sense to try and understand him in the player of games there's very much this idea that you know how you play the game will reveal your soul almost and it it becomes this point where at the very end of the novel This is kind of a spoiler, sorry. Uh, but the, the guy from the culture, which is this kind of enlightened, (laughs) uh, post scarcity society, basically is playing the current emperor of this, um, more backward society. And they realize he realizes at a certain point that the way that they're playing this enormously complicated game is a mirror of their two societies. So he is, he is playing as this kind of pluralistic, enlightened, very extended. A egalitarian society, the other guy's playing in this much more kind of um hierarchical sort of militarized imperial style, and really so the the game becomes a battle between ideologies as much as it's a battle between these two individual players so there's this sort of weird idea you know what do games represent for us? And that's why it sort of makes me wonder, you know, about something like game theory, the idea that that gaming the system, understanding games, understanding the way that people play games, that games are essentially an insight into psychology as much as they are just a kind of frivolous diversion.
0: One of the interesting things about The Prisoner I always felt was that I was always, I, I was never entirely convinced that it wasn't all a big game. You know, and the whole idea of it was that this guy was being messed with because the the, the core the core idea of of the character is that he 's quitting the secret service or whatever for a reason that ostensibly at the beginning the village are trying to get out of him you know why did you leave it 's like he's got he 's got this huge secret in his head as to something that he knows or that he participated in. Uh, That is this piece of information that they don't have, that they desperately need. And that's why they put him through all this psychological torment and they trick him and they manipulate him and they play with him and they, uh, they, they try all kinds of different methods. You know, there's an entire episode where they, they make him believe he's escaped. I think it's called many happy returns. It's my favorite episode actually. And it really plays. It's so good because it actually, they actually do get him off out of the village and he is really in London but it's still all part of a game. It's still all part of messing with his mind. So it's, it's so, it's so mad and so trippy. And there's lots of different points where you think he's learned something that's an important piece of information about the situation. And it's not quite what he thought or it's then turned up upside down. But it's this whole idea that I was never entirely sure if the whole thing wasn't some sort of massive setup, even though they ostensibly are trying to get this piece of information from him. You know and and that's what messes with my head every time I watch the show and I think about it in that what if it was what if it was all just a big game what if he was part what if he was part of it what if he actually was playing along or something crazy like that and with the prisoner you never entirely know and I think that's the great thing about the psychology of these kind of stories where you know like you've just discussed in that I love the idea that maybe there could be a level of of complicity along with it and that's the nuance of that is is lost in something like move along home when you find out that they were just being messed with as part of this weird first contact scenario you know in order to essentially please the wadi you know and keep them on on side and then it just feels like you could have gone down a lot more of a, a a different kind of route with that very core idea you could have made it much more where, like you say, there were stakes, there were actual threats, there was this uncertainty as to quite what their motives were, you know, and I think that would have made things. It would have made them a much more interesting group of characters. But there is there is that level of underlying psychology which I don't think is is there with Move Along Home. It's just they're just trying to access that level of. Oh, what if it's, it's all a game? Oh, you know. It, it, oh, look, look at this obstacle they've got. To look at that piece of weird, weird camera angle. And it's just a bit like, yeah, but I, none of it rings true. You know, it's not convincing absurdism. It doesn't or really help them anything in along any those lines, tangible way.
3: Realising that they're participating in a game. I mean, they do sort of realise that at a certain point. They have this kind of moment where they're like, oh, this is like a game. It's got different levels. You know, these chap, chap one, chap two, or whatever. It's got kind of. It, it, you know there are sort of game-like uh, elements to to what they're being asked to do but it doesn't really make that much difference to them I, I think you're right though about The Prisoner that I actually think number six treats it like a game he does treat it as if every week it's his job to just kind of try and outwit them it is kind of a battle of wits uh, he is kind of a master at playing it and what's kind of awful about it for for certainly the first you know Decent chunk of episodes is every week it seems like he's going to succeed. And then they have this refrain, like the last sort of, um, shot of, of every episode is his face, uh, sort of zooming towards the camera and then these bars clanging shut over him. So it's like, you know, however, however close he came to escaping or to, to doing whatever it was he was trying to do, they always, something goes wrong and they always get him in the end and it all turns out to have been hopeless. Um, so it's a weirdly sort of depressing outlook in a sense in that certainly for those you know first decent chunk of episodes it feels like there's always the same formula in that every time you think he's going to succeed he's frustrated and he loses basically he loses the next round of the game now by the time you get to the end it is all slightly turned on its head and they do manage to have a kind of triumphant if utterly bizarre and incomprehensible ending but you, you, you know it doesn't in some ways you might think that show would end up in a kind of really gloomy depressing way with him just just sort of stuck back there again. But I think there is definitely a sense that he's kind of playing them, they're playing him. Uh It is a sequence of these kind of battles between him and these different number twos playing these kind of mind games, really, you, you know, is what they're playing. You, you know, to the point where in the penultimate episode, he sort of seems to talk number two into dying. And it's not Quite clear. In the final episode, it looks like yeah. they can explain it. And number yeah. two is saying, why did I die? You know, they brought him back to life. Number two is saying, why did I die? Was the drink I had in my hand poisoned? You know, what was the answer? And they refuse to explain how it was that number six telling him to die somehow managed to make him Die, but it does feel like sort of ultimate mind game. They're there, you know, and there is a lot of kind of hypnotism. There is a lot of mind reading. There's an episode where people's uh are swapping bodies. You know, there is a lot of this kind of sci-fi stuff in it. Weirdly, even though it's sort of set essentially in the present day, it's set in this weird kind of surrealistic place. But there are kind of contemporary things. I mean, in the last episode, they play uh, "All You Need Is Love" by the Beatles, which again is very. Weird and disconcerting and kind of f- feels inappropriate, but at the same time, it feels totally appropriate. So it's that kind of dreamy, s- strange, you know, the fact that suddenly in this kind of weird, otherworldly sci-fi show, you've, you've got what must at the time have been very contemporary music. Um, and it, it, it is a show that sort of plays with a lot of those different elements, but, but I think definitely it, it does kind of, the, the game is significant and there's a reason that there's that chess match in the episode checkmate and the whole of the episode is kind of allegorically connected to it and to this idea of you know how do you know who's on which side because they talk about the fact that in their chess game they don't wear black and white they don't differentiate the two sides but the idea is that you can tell whether someone is playing for you know with you or against you by their behavior and a lot of the episode is about kind of whether he can work out who is who is a prisoner and who is a guard because a lot of the supposed prisoners are actually uh you know f- effectively you know, kind of poachers turn gamekeeper gamekeepers in a sense, and and also there's this sense that all the people running the village are all prisoners themselves. Everyone is sort of a victim of this uh society one way or another but but the other thing that it made me think of thinking of number six as this kind of game player is that, like I said, he is very kind of straight down the line. He's very kind of upstanding he he does seem you know you were saying McGowan was quite a kind of moral guy. he seems like someone with quite a strict. Moral purpose himself somehow, and one of the things that struck me about these stories is, of course, the the kind of sort of the inciting incident in a sense for Move Along Home. I mean, you were saying, okay, the wadi come and they want to do their thing with games. Well, actually, the whole thing with the game is supposed to be to teach Quark a lesson because Quark cheated, and that's what kicks the whole thing up. Is someone yeah. who won't play? Yeah, of course. Fair. Yeah, and the idea that when you're talking about games and, and you know games as an insight into people's souls or personalities or whatever this. This idea of whether you cheat or not is absolutely fundamental. And actually, even in The Player of Games, uh, the novel, the thing that kicks the whole thing off is that this game player is convinced by uh, this kind of sinister... They, they have these drones, like like drones, basically. I, mean, I think when it was written, this was a, a radical concept. We now have drones. But like if you imagine you had a drone that was self-aware and talked to you and so on, and this kind of rather sinister drone convinces him right. to cheat uh, yeah. in... A game that he's playing which he's already going to win but there is a way of winning that no one has ever achieved before and it will be beautiful and kind of incredibly it's sort of elaborate and satisfying and, and and he's tempted enough by the idea of not just winning but winning in this spectacular way that he does cheat and then the drone turns out to have done it in order to blackmail him and basically because there's this you know his entire reputation as the greatest game player in the galaxy uh will be damaged if it's found out that he cheated that's how they kind of get him into this scenario where he you know starts playing this this much more deadly game but it made me think also you know in star trek you've got of course captain kirk i mean what we know about captain kirk was he cheated the uh kobayashi maru which is in a sense a game that like that like the village in the prisoner Mm. it's a game Mm. that seems to be rigged that however whatever you try and do however you approach it you, you end up with those bars coming down in front of you and your ship blows up do you know what i mean it's like it's supposed to be an unwinnable game. And here we have this character who quite controversially found a way to win it by cheating. And do we see that as a kind of victory of individualism in the terms of the prisoner, which arguably it is, you know, Kirk is kind of, there's a reason he is that kind of iconic individualist in a sense, you know, and he's not going to submit to the fact he says I, I you know i won't accept a no-win scenario he won't accept that the society or the federation or the kind of authority are saying this is how reality is this this situation is unwinnable he says no i'm not gonna go along with that i'll find my own way to win it and he does but he does it by cheating and what does it mean and how much is you know what happens in that film not to say that what happens to him is, is punishment exactly for cheating in this test you know 30 years ago or whatever but I think there is a kind of sense in the the shape of the film that you know he is being taught a lesson about cheating he's being taught the lesson that you can't really cheat death that there are certain things that cannot be cheated and that in a way he has to grow up and accept that he can't go through life feeling like he can always win you know that's kind of the the lesson of the film in some ways
0: it just goes it goes back to the the psychology behind these kind of stories and a like, lot like, like we've talked about. I just, I just, like I said, I just wish, I just wish, wish, wish that Mo- move along home had had more of that, that, um, that ambiguity to it and that, and more of that underlying, you know, level of uncertainty and, and that, and that you would have played with that a bit more, but then, you know, it it, it, it is what it is. I mean, it's historically a, you know, scorned and frowned upon episode of Star Trek, but at least at least it is trying to sort of tap the well of something that is far more interesting and far more profound in, in popular culture because, the, you know, the prisoner has never quite gone away. You know, it's still on the, um, the top 250 TV lists of, uh, uh, on IMDb <coughs> in terms of votes. It's it most recently had um, a sequel. Uh, comic book series from titan comics which was a a limited series which is actually very good actually and it brings the um the the village up to date and it's it's kind of a sequel um but it's got a new sort of number six character and it was very very good very well put together uh, and and manages to do a contemporary modern day version of this idea in a really interesting way so it's still there, you know. It's never quite gone away, and it's very, very fondly remembered by lots of people. And it's finding new audiences, I think, even though it's it, it's it's now a very, very old TV show. In the same way that Star Trek: The Original Series still strikes a chord in popular culture. So at least Move Along Home is trying to evoke something like that, yeah. Even if it doesn't really work,
3: I, I mean, <laughs> it
0: doesn't I, work at all. I don't hate it as much. <laughs> like, it, it. I think it's it's hard to get around the fact that
3: it's a it's not a great episode but there are there are enjoyable things in it and it is kind of ridiculous and it is funny maybe unintentionally so and the alan moraine song is is sort of a joy in a in a bizarre way i mean there's a reason like in the ds9 documentary it's actually <laughs> it's the fight, like the last joke in the, in the documentary running <laughs> over the ending credits uh ira stephen bear and nana yeah about you know how could you not include yeah. this episode you didn't talk about in the pale moonlight you didn't talk about this you didn't talk about that and then iris says you know oh yeah of course we you know the the single greatest uh moment in deep space nine basically we didn't even cover and they bring up this clip of them all singing a moraine um you know it is kind of it's not quite iconic <laughs> to the level of spock's brain i think but it is kind of um it's it's, just, it's almost reaching that sort of level and there is because it's so naive and it's so ridiculous and it's so silly there is something quite almost charming about it. There is something quite quaint about how ridiculous it is. And I mean even that even that song, the way they sing it, I find it hilarious. You, you know, Terry Farrell clearly can't really be bothered to sing a song and she's like <laughs> almost speaking it. Uh, Avery no. Brooks, meanwhile, just absolutely goes for it and
0: sings. It.
3: Not only does he sing it, but he sings it in this very kind of like
0: I'll married one, two, three.
3: <laughs> Bizarre. I mean, like, I know he, like, when he when he does his singing later on in DS9, yeah. he often he, he does sing, he has a, quite a high voice, given what a big, kind of booming guy he is, and so on. But he like he doesn't just sing the song, yeah. he kind of commits to, uh, I'm doing a silly nursery rhyme dance thing. He does commit. Thing. Yeah. Um, and there's just that great shot of the of, of <laughs> visitor with a, I don't know, what it is a tricorder or something, hold it and tries to do the silly dance. I don't know. Like, it, it is ludicrous, but at the same time, there is something. There's, there's something there that you don't, that if we didn't have this episode, you wouldn't have it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's added something to the no, yeah, bizarre, exactly. rich yeah. tapestry yeah, yeah. that is Star Trek. So I, I don't know. I don't like, it's not an episode that I would frequently choose to stick on, but I actually think there, there are things that are kind of charming about it. And I do think there are, unfortunately, it is sort of a missed opportunity, but it does, I suppose, tap into this kind of idea of, gaming and game playing and what game playing means, which I suppose you could say is there in Star Trek right from the beginning. I mean, talking about Captain Kirk, I think the very first scene, correct me if I'm wrong, but the first scene in Where No Man Has Gone Before is the scene where Kirk and Spock are playing chess, I believe. Now, obviously we know, I mean, I know no one, one, you know, okay, no one watched that as their first episode. They saw the man trap first anyway. But like in terms of the sort of production of Star Trek, Okay, at the very least, like the people at NBC who saw the cage, they're familiar with Spock. They've seen that character. This is their first introduction to this new captain, Captain Kirk. And how do we introduce him? We introduce him playing chess, playing 3D chess because it's space and it's got to be different. But essentially playing, you you know, Kirk and Spock are playing chess. And I haven't seen that episode for a few years. But my memory is that Kirk wins, right, I think. And that's kind of uh, the sort of unexpected... If that's not the case, then I've well, obviously like projected that onto mm. it that I want Kirk to win. But I feel like that's that's part of it. And even that is kinda of symbolic, <laughs> isn't it? Because it's saying here's this logical my argument does fall apart slightly if Spock actually wins in that episode and someone can tell me and you know I should have gone and watched it uh, but on my assumption that if I were writing that episode it would yeah. be that, that Kirk wins and, and even if he doesn't to be honest I feel like the Star Trek answer that is that Kirk always wins um you, you know it tells you something about it doesn't it who who is gonna win is sort of symbolic it's kind of an insight into it is an insight into their characters an insight into their kind of brilliance and Kirk is a kind of is a character who is presented as a kind of gameplay. He's a risk taker. If you think of the Corbomite manoeuvre, you know, he's almost like a sort of high stakes poker game or something. And of course, you, you know, in, in Next Gen, we get the poker game as this kind of significant sort of emblem of, of you know, of taking risks and making decisions of all, all those kind of things, you know, games as a sort of metaphor almost. And Star Trek is is sort of obsessed with games one way or another. I mean, you've got, you know, on the kind of silly level, you've got fisbin you, you know, Kirk, again, like uh in, inventing this kind of ludicrous meaningless game that people then have subsequently tried to sort of, you know, make some kind of sense of, but you've got all these kind of board games popping up throughout Star Trek, it, you know, Kelto, Cadiscot, Kotra, it, you know, then you've even got games like the, uh, Strat- Strat- how do you pronounce it? That, the, the, the one that Stratag, that, that weird guy Stra- plays, s- you, you know? Yeah. Stratagima? Stratagem or anyway, something like that. Yeah, yeah. You've got yeah. all these different games cropping up at different times. And this idea that, you know, that this is something that on these, Ships, and in some ways you might think it's weird. If you've got a holodeck, why are you play? You know, are you really going to go to the mess hall and play? You know, what looks like kind of space connect four in the case of Voyager. You, you, you know, that uh, Calis Scott, that that Naomi Wildman and yeah. Seven are playing. You know, you 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 get these kind of um, <laughs> space connect four, <laughs> quite, quite basic looking. Space Space connect and again, and again, that sort of insight into culture. So like the <laughs> Vulcan game is all very logical and very mysterious and sort of mystical and, and so on. And every culture seems to have its own games one way or another. And I suppose that sort of is true to some extent. Although maybe we've kind of lost that in our society because we do... I mean, I don't actually even know where chess comes from. I mean, obviously Chinese checkers, I assume, comes from China. But like a lot of the games that we play, I think most people who hmm. play them are you know, we're not really even necessarily familiar with what the history of something like that is like chess is a kind of pretty much a universal game. Everyone, well, most, most people grow up at some point learning how to play it, even though the rules are quite bizarre and random and, you know, learning that the, the knight makes that weird else, you, you know, it's, it's on one level, you'd think it could be quite an obscure game that people would be like, this makes no sense. This is bloody mad, you know, but at the same time, it's kind of part of growing up that everyone learns how to play that. And I suppose, There is something about like that, you know, what are the games that we kind of teach our children? What are the games that we grow up with? And what does it mean to to learn how to play these different games and sort of participate in that as a sort of part of
0: our society or our culture? Mm, And and to be fair, I mean, obviously we're talking about Star Trek episodes that aired 20-some years ago, nearly 30 years ago, but you're finding that board games are now... Are making a general comeback, you know. In in cold, I mean, you know, the, I've there are you getting a lot more pop up shops now that are specific board game shops where people go and they play these things and they can eat and drink at the same time. You know, I've been to one myself and it was fantastic. You know, you pay a little bit of money and you've got an entire selection of games. And and these these days, you know, it, it, there are some really fascinating, complicated board games that involve a level of skill that isn't just things like moving a, 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 a knight or a pawn around the board. You know, you've got things like Pandemic, for example, which is a big one, you know, where you're fighting off a, a, a plague and you've got, you know, there's so many complex ones now that are really, really interesting to play. So I think as much as on this, while, while at the same time we've obviously had video games over the last few decades take people's attention and now we're we're starting to see the beginnings of, you know, virtual reality technology with with game playing at the same time, I think you'll find that there are still a certain subset of of people who want to actually play something that is 2 d in front of them with a level of of skill and you know and psychology because a lot of the board games have far more psychology in them anyway you know in how you, having to sort of second guess or bluff or you know be very tactical about the the, the way you're playing a game with other people set around a table. So I think, you know, Star Trek maybe, you know, had some sort of forward thinking in terms of how they wrote those shows by actually having these 23rd century, 24th century characters still playing physical board games, even in a a society where you would think that by now they've completely moved past anything physical like this. I I, I think in a way, maybe they didn't quite anticipate the fact that they were quite on the money with with that, and it wouldn't surprise me if the board game actually does last longer. The, the actual psychological side of it lasts longer than your virtual space or certainly, well, certainly sits alongside something like in chess, the
3: future it's become the design has become sort of streamlined and simplified enough that it kind of is almost timeless i mean compared to these kind of modern games that that show their age or even something like monopoly that i suppose it kind of is of a certain time and and is still incredibly popular but you can kind of sort of imagine that the, the moment that that comes out of Funnily enough, I joined um a year or two ago a local uh, board games group near to me and I went along thinking it would all be like Scrabble and Cluedo and the kind of games that I'd grown up with, and it was it was you know it was totally different. As you say, these were games about you (laughs) know one of them was about I don't know setting up vineyards Mm. in the south of France. One of them was about what photos do you take on holiday in Japan. You you know they're kind of they're in some ways very specific things, but also you're right, absolutely the psychology. The first night that I went along to this group, the first game that we played, I had no idea what it was called. I I could barely ever follow the rules for most of these games, but this was a game where a big part of the kind of mechanics of it was. (laughs) You had a bag, uh, like a li- little cloth bag and you had some goods in the bag. You were some kind of trader or something and people were sort of making each other offers and so on. And you could either tell the truth about what was in the bag or you could lie about it. Uh, and so the game was really a, a large part of the game was about essentially bluffing the other players. I suppose you same as poker, you know, in a sense about what's in the bag and whether you've really got to trade what you claim you have or if you're selling them a, a dud essentially. Um, and I was thinking gosh this is a very you know sort of psychologically complex game and you're kind of making all these judgments about other people and so on and i was i was playing with a couple of other guys and the guy i was sat next to um at some point someone went off to go to the loo or whatever so i just got chatting to him and i said oh what do you do and he said oh i'm a psychologist and i sort of thought oh god okay <laughs> you know, i've got no chance now uh you know how, how am i going to stand <laughs> a chance in this game because yeah. it is absolutely you, you know yeah. psychology and you know that's the that's that's sort of the key to winning mm-hmm. it but mm-hmm. arguably i suppose you know we see this in star trek again and again you know that's the key to you know defeating your your adversary or your nemesis or whatever is to understand them um and i suppose that's what these games kind of um prepare you for one way or another is that they are a way of working out you, you know something like actually the rotha khan i mean so you've got the Kobayashi maru this game that kirk was you know playing against the machine, so to speak, and, and refusing to lose. But you've also got this game being played out between Kirk and Khan, which is, you, you know, it's very much like a sort of war game scenario almost. I mean, it is this kind of battle and it's all mm, about mm. Um, tricking each other and kind of, yeah. you know, playing to the psychology of the other player.
0: Exactly. But like the prefix yeah. number, the prefix number, that, that mm. sequence mm. is a and, great and, well, it example even of that. just the yeah.
3: idea of, you know, them kind of manipulating each other and, and Kirk finding ways to manipulate Khan into doing what he wants him to do and into playing in a, in a certain way, uh, that really the, you, you know, you're going to win the game if you understand the psychology of, of both yourself and the opponent in a way to the extent that you can kind of defeat them. And I suppose that's where you get this idea that almost there is a kind of, it's almost a kind of moral triumph and i suppose that's what you see in the prisoner is this idea of this kind of uncompromising man who is locked in battle in a sense with these uh various number twos and it is this kind of um he does have this real confidence that he's going to win ultimately i think that's one reason they never do break him that, that eventually he's gonna succeed and there is something kind of um Quite admirable about it. I mean, as I as I say, you know, he's not a very likable guy, but but there is something quite appealing about this strength of of purpose, strength of will, strength of personality, really, that allows him to play in that way and with that kind of confidence, and ultimately to get through it.
0: Yeah, it's why I quite like your um uh, your comparison to Kirk, because I think I think there is something to that because Kirk is similar. You know, he, he, he will, he will absolutely knock back down from, from a, a psychological battle of wits. You know, he, he, he will, he will ch- he will put everything, he will roll that dice and he will put everything on it. You know, pretty much guarantee banking that he, and that's the whole thing with the Kobayashi Maru, you know, he reprograms it so he wins. You know, he is in, in that sense, he's, he's a bad not loser, moralistic. And he's a, cheated, kind of the ultimate time, bad loser. He's, doing yeah. Is, yeah. he's a, yeah, he's a bad loser. But he's committed, you know, it's a different kind of thing, I suppose, in that sense to number six, but he's committed, you know, and that's, and that's, it's an interesting thing that these, you know, very moral characters, and, you know, you could say the same about, even though move along home doesn't really bring it out, you know, you can say the same about Cisco. You know, Cisco was the kind of man who was, who commits himself. You know, a lot, all the Star Trek characters, all the Star Trek captains in their own way do this, you know, and they, they are, if they, if they are challenged, they will commit themselves to it. But so it's, 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 it's an interesting trait to think of a Starfleet captain and of a leader, and that was the thing. Even though number six is a is isn't that kind of character, you know. And one of the one of the big things about the prisoner is this this idea that you never really escape the village, and that that, that everything is the village. You know that that's one of the underlying ideas behind the, the prisoner, and it's something that actually crops up more in in even more in the the, uh, the comic book series recently. That actually there is that what we think is the village is is not just, if the village is the entire, we're, we're, everything is the village. We're, we're all living in the village, ultimately. That, so there is, in a way, there is no escape. And, and it's, it's a very Orwellian kind of idea. But that's that, that's all part of the, 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 the fact that he is this moral fortitude right in the middle of it. He is this person who will not, it will not capitulate, you know, and he is that bulwark against this and that and that makes him a really compelling character and that's why that's why most of the star trek captains are really compelling in their own way because they have that to them you know and for me that's one of the things that i'm not going to bash it cuz we've been here before but one of the things that i think is missing from discovery is that that kind of character in the same way you know i, I that's one of the real strengths of star trek series that you have those kind of real strong uh, characters in the face of people manipulating and twisting. I mean, look at all the games that Q plays on Picard, for e- for example. And Picard is just steadfast throughout it. He's like, "No, get off my ship," and he doesn't he doesn't give in. And that's and that's a really powerful and, and it, yeah, funnily enough, thing actually, I think Q, Q does that very well. watching
3: the prisoner because there are some of these weird sort of surrealistic touches. You know, there's a whole like Napoleonic army at one point, and it made me think of that episode hiding Q. You know, Q is also quite into the kind of costumes and the kind of. To, certainly in the early episodes that we see Q in, in next gen that kind of weird uncanny kind of creepy and even like the maniacal laughter you know we get that in encounter at Farpoint in the in the in the courtroom you know that that slightly encounter mad Far Point. yeah element and yeah absolutely mm. playing games playing yeah exactly playing games tilted with people, cameras games and yeah all that stuff but i think you're right you know the village is very much a kind of a microcosm for the world. And there is this kind of link between sort of the village and the world and, and this link between the idea of, you know, who someone is in the game and who they are in reality. And of course, we see that in Star Trek a lot in the holodeck and, you know, is is who you are in the holodeck the same as who you are? Or if you're Barclay, is it, you know, the opposite? But you can see that in some ways with these other games. And I suppose the thing about these games is that they play to a sort of competitive aspect in these characters and i mean we see that with cisco in the baseball episode of course i mean that's a whole different like sports and those kind of games but you know you see that as well i think in the board games as well i mean if you think about the poker club um in next gen They take it quite seriously, given that they live in a post scarcity Mm -hmm. society where they can't ever win anything. (laughs) You you know, I mean, what are they playing for? It's kind of meaningless. It's not even like Voyager, they have these replicator (laughs) rations or something. So they've they've kind of created an economy that they can gamble. But like, ultimately, what does it mean to be a great gambler in a society where you have everything anyway? you you know, I suppose really all you can gamble is risk, you know, as Kirk says, risk is our business. Uh, And, and and that's, that's all you can kind of gamble over. But I guess you do have these characters, you know, Riker as the kind of most Kirk-like character in next gen, again, is the kind of, is the one who wins the poker game because he's got that kind of, (laughs) <laughs> it's because of that winning personality he you, you know there is an element of the kind of charm of it that is the, the kind of the, the winner <laughs> he's going to come out on top um he's going to take the right risks and kind of partly by the magic of storytelling he's going to discover that they they always work out one way or another but they sort of managed to make it feel like these games those games are meaningful even though the stakes are removed by the fact that there's no money being gambled on them and, and maybe that is because it's just kind of symbolic or whatever i mean i mean some people are very competitive over games i you know speak from experience having gone to my local board games club i mean i I quite enjoy playing games i did i quite enjoyed (laughs) you know finding out about these uh new games especially the ones that like i say are kind of a microcosm of something they are quite elaborate and fascinating but i've never been massively competitive about games uh but some people you know, really are. And you see it in the way that they play and you see it in how seriously they take it and you see, you know, how much it means to them sort of winning or losing. And I guess that in itself does give you, in some ways, an insight into their their personalities. And I feel like in Star Trek, you, you, you don't get many bad losers necessarily. You don't get people who are like obsessed with the game in an unhealthy way. But you do feel like all those characters you mentioned, they're gonna be in it to win it. Do you know what I mean? They're gonna be if they're if they're playing one of these games, they're 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 not gonna be doing it half heartedly, they're really gonna take it seriously because these things they do they mean something one way or another. And and there's also all this sort of question about, you know, what are the pleasures I mean, we've talked about the holodeck on primitive culture many times before, you know, some of the pleasures of the holodeck about escapism and so on. I mean We get that, of course, in the real world, not only with games, but with Star Trek games. You know, there are Star Trek video games where you can go around and pretend you're on Voyager and blasting aliens or whatever. But there are also lots of Star Trek board games. I mean, you you know, when I was growing up watching Next Gen, I used to collect the uh, collectible card game cards and you would be, you know, trading this card or that card or whatever. And the actual game, I have to say, I don't know if you ever collected these cards, but like, I, you know, I, I did used to play it now and then, but it was enormously complicated. You needed a table that was, you basically needed the, the table in the conference lounge on the Enterprise D to play it because cause you had to set up this... uh representation <laughs> of the galaxy which it seemed to involve about like 45 cards yeah. stacked next to each other uh you had to build this deck it was just enormously complicated and it was quite exciting because you did sort of you know it's a way of like entering the universe that you're, you're obsessed with or whatever but it was just sort of enormously elaborate and i suppose that's one of the things with these games is they do often become very complicated and maybe something like chess is easier to kind of relate to because it's you know, once you've learnt the different moves that all those pieces can do, it, it's fairly straightforward. It's one board, it's like I don't know how you you know, a set number of pieces, it's it's quite contained. And yet at the same time people can dedicate their lives to becoming expert at it and to developing their ability at it and to kind of honing those skills
0: one way or another, however sort mm. of straightforward it might seem on the surface. And I I think it go. It does go back to the psychology of it. I think that's what people get out of it. You know, I think I think it, it's a different thrill, and I think that's probably what a lot of these Star Trek characters get out of it when they play these games. It's the it's the psychology of success. It's the psychology of winning of of, of out, out tactically outmanoeuvring somebody, even if it's just in a game of poker for no for nothing. You know, for no reward, for no monetary reward. It's that feeling. You know, imagine how happy Riker would have been if he's got one over Data. You know, <laughs> it's that it's that sense of of, of whether it, whether whether it's a vanity thing, whether it's an ego thing, whether it's a, oh I'm you know I'm clever, I'm smart. I don't know, but it's 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 an interesting it, it, battles of wits. Are you know I think they're really good. You know, mind fodder. You know, they they help keep you sharp, and they are that's why you know games are, are can be really really thrilling, but also enriching. And and I think that's that's one of the. You know, you talk, you mentioned stakes and I go back to the fact that that, that was the problem with move along home as a a concept because the stakes weren't there, you know, and you didn't really feel that, that these, you know, when, when, you know, in a lot of these Star Trek episodes, they're playing a game in another scene, you know, it's like, oh, they're just playing a game and then the, then the story happens. This, the story was the game. This was them in the middle of what should have been a deadly scenario, or should have been really. But and and it's not, you know, and that and that's that's part of the problem. If you're going to sort of transform the idea of of, compe- of compet of of a competitive element and of a game, and these people having to outwit and use their minds and and outfox things, then you need to create something that has more genuine, more genuine, a greater level of peril. And I think that's that that was that was that was everything that was exactly what the prisoner had every week you know even though you knew that this was a battle of wits going on you really knew that that people were just disappearing or they were dying or even if you didn't you weren't necessarily attached to the people around number 6 their fate gave his journey greater weight and greater threat and greater fear because you you just didn't know how he was going to get out of it so you know it's you have to be careful how you how you portray a game, I think, on screen. You've either got to commit to it, as we've said, or don't make and you also it have about in the game element in the of
3: course, that the relationship between number six and number two is key to every episode and And the fact that this antagonist changes with almost every episode is kind of interesting. because it's a way sort of reinventing the the game and reinventing that sort of battle. And I suppose there is also a sense that although sometimes number two, I mean I always find it weird, like, it, it would make more sense in a way if number two got replaced every time number six wins around, which he does, you know, occasionally it does end triumphantly and like he frustrates them one way or another uh, and sort of fools them. Or as I say, ultimately, he, you know, ends up with a guy dying seemingly. But actually, they seem to get replaced sort of either way. But so there is this sense that each week it's, it's a battle with a new antagonist and there's something quite exciting about like what, what quirks is this number two going to bring? to the table and in one of them for example it's a woman which is kind of interesting and you know how does that change the dynamic and change the relationship between number six and number two um and so on and maybe that's another element that is lacking in move along home is that the waddy guy although he turns up in the game he turns up you know in the you know chap four or whatever he just turns up to kind of shout random things and be weird he's not a presence as an antagonist you know maybe maybe that's what you really need in order for a game story like that to be about psychology and so on it needs to be a battle of wits and a battle of will and you kind of need to know who you know who is the antagonist and what do they want and what do they you know what are they playing for in a sense what are the stakes on their side as well as the stakes for our characters and maybe all of that is just slightly kind of opaque in the ds9 episode as well because we don't really know we don't know why the wadi are playing this game we don't even know until the very end whether it is a game or whether it's a you know, how serious it is or isn't or whatever. I mean, the, the Wadi guy does... He, he acts quite sinister in Quarks, I suppose. He, you know, he says some things that are sinister enough that Quark and Odo get, at some level, what's going on. But he's kind of... He, the, the Wadi are very sort of mysterious and opaque and kind of... Um, we we don't really know what they stand for or, or what's going on. And I think that does make it harder to sort of engage with that. That's sort of also... It doesn't just lower the stakes, but it kind of lowers the investment in the battle, in a sense. It's not Cisco and that guy going head to head in a battle of wills. It's kind of Cisco, Bashir, Kira and Dax kind of, you know, loafing around in this bizarre, uh, brightly coloured kind of <laughs> labyrinth type thing that doesn't really <laughs> seem to go anywhere. You, you, you know, sort of almost like yeah. killing time in there, in there somehow until we get to the end of the episode, which, which is partly because they have no agency really anyway because the you know it's slightly unclear who dictates what happens to them because because it's sort of being played out on some other level anyway a bit like with the chess match where the you know symbolically in the prisoner the the players have no control over the outcome of the game they're literally just pawns they're literally just uh pieces and 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 when one of them does try to move against his orders he gets taken
0: away for you know reconditioning I, th- I think that's that they are they are essentially pawns. I think I think that again could have been made a little bit more of. You know, it could have been a little bit m- more explicit. But then you'd have to you'd have to kind of maybe clue the audience in on something a little bit more. And and I think that it was trying to go for the ambiguity, but it it kind of doesn't work. It does it doesn't work in the same way that it should if you had. Been a bit more of a, aware of what was what their motivations were. I think I th- I sometimes wonder if it might have worked better had you known what their motivations were. And I don't I don't know. It's 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 an interesting episode anyway. I mean it, it <laughs> it's worth it for the comedy and it's and you know it it, it it's at least entertaining. And uh, there are some episodes of DS Nine in the early days that are really quite boring. So. It, it's never boring <laughs> it's it's not good that, that but it's never best, boring uh, i'll give it that
3: say about it one way or another but you know i mean it, it's <laughs> there it, it, we all know it's there and you know we, we've at least found another way of approaching you know it was an excuse for me to go and watch the prisoner which i'd never seen uh and which you know now i have and that was quite an experience and definitely one that you know that i would say it's, it's worth, worth seeing. seeing if if only yeah. as a kind of counterpart you know weird counterpart to tos you know as a show that comes out of literally the same very much the same era you know 67 68 that kind of time doing something very different on the other side of the pond but at the same time you know it was being screened in the states as well and and kind of giving a different sort of insight into the kind of zeitgeist at the time and the kind of cultural fabric of you know the world in in that kind of um era really it is definitely a fascinating and also you know just amazingly creative mm. um show it's aged really well as well it has aged amazingly well. really well it looks well. really good as it well. does. That's the surprising thing it, it looks much less ropey than yeah you would think especially given that like you know one of the kind of antagonists in that show is this giant sort of white blobby <laughs> ball thing that chases people around and yeah kind of suffocates them <laughs> you know, it's kind of kitsch. It's kind of, it, it, it's got lots of elements that shouldn't really work. And yet somehow combination of like sound effects, music, you know, all this kind of stuff, it does more often than not. It lands. They do manage to make it genuinely creepy and weird and kind of, uh, uncanny and, and sort of stra- genuinely strange, y- you know, and it could easily have been, I think the prisoner could easily have just come across as really naff and silly and kind of kitsch. And it actually, it sells it much, much better than you might expect in some ways, and, and certainly, you know, not to keep on bashing, move along home. But it certainly, it certainly sells the the weird, crazy world that it's presenting a lot better than that episode it yeah. sells the weird craziness that
0: that it is. You'll never forget the prisoner if you watch it. Yeah, it's true. That is absolutely true. No, <laughs> you'll never escape. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Well,
3: it's. Uh, it's uh been fun having you back um tony to talk about this and this is not the last time we might even have a rematch uh coming up soon because i think you're going to be back on our uh i was gonna say on the air on our on our podcasting wires on a kind of semi-regular basis now hopefully
0: moving forward is that right yeah yeah, yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna come back and um and tr- i i we're gonna try i think maybe try and do you know, one one a month, maybe or something like that. I'm going to come back more regularly anyway because I've missed doing this, and it's, you know, it's it's all it's always fun. So yeah, yeah, you'll uh, you, there's no escaping me either now. <laughs> you're you're the number two who keeps who keeps coming back somehow
3: one way or another um yeah well it's definitely it's it's, it'll be great to have you back on a kind of semi-regular basis because um uh those of you who follow the babel conference our facebook listeners group will have seen clara's post on there clara's had to take a step back from primitive culture because she's uh got too many just too much uh going on in her life i think at the moment but i'm sure we'll be tempting her back in due course as well when things have calmed down a bit but um absolutely great to always great to you know a pleasure to have you back on the show and good to know that we'll be Thank you. reconnecting over some of these things on a kind of semi-regular basis at least going forward but the prisoner and move along home is not the only thing we've been talking about on trek fm this week so here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on on the network
1: previously on trek.fm literary treks but in this case i like the character And the fact that she's a counselor and a Vulcan, because when you go to a counselor, most of the time it's about your emotions or dealing with your emotions. So how ironic it is that a Vulcan is the person you go to to figure out how to deal with emotional issues Mm -hmm. from a non-emotional person. Earl Grey.
0: Episodic TV is really good for watching in bed before you go to sleep. Because you can go to bed, watch a little forty-five minute episode, and by the
3: end you're almost asleep. So it's it's like a, a nice little comfort blanket.
1: You're saying Star Trek puts you to sleep?
0: <laughs> yeah. J- <laughs> yes, I, actually, yes. Um, even though I love it, it does. If I didn't have on the
3: background, I probably wouldn't sleep. Because I become so used to it. Interesting.
1: Being on. So it's like a, a soothing presence. Oh yeah, it's
3: that background noise of life. Star Trek, the hum of the the warp
1: drive. The ready room. Do you feel like there are too many of these arcs, too many of these threads running through a 14-episode season? And I ask that because one of the more interesting stories to me, apart from the Red Angel, the big story, is the Stamets Kolber story. Mm-hmm. And I think that both the actors, Wilson Cruz and Anthony Rapp, have done an amazing job of portraying this story. The chemistry between them feels so real. And I've really connected with the emotions behind this story. But I feel short-changed. I feel like we're only dipping in here and there Mm -hmm. just enough to remind us that that story is going on. Whereas I would like to see it develop more. And I feel like maybe they're just trying to do too much in too little time.
0: Warp (laughs) 5. But I think Brandon's right. You can jump to bound and have the same thing. Yeah, you can jump to bound and have the same thing. Because you can have him say, I want to leave, then find his replacement, whatever, whatever happens in between, now he decides to stay and there's a problem because this guy wants to stay. Which plays out all in bound. Correct. So I think I'm not going to be able to drive Brandon as crazy as I want to. I will say no.
1: And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
2: Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation at the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, that's B A B E L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. We are Primitive Culture and we are your hosts. My name is Clara Cook and you can find me on Twitter at clara jean mc. My co-host is Duncan Barrett and you can find Duncan on Twitter at Barrett's Books. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Now I'd like to express a big thank you to our executive producer, Amy Nelson. You can find Amy Nelson on the Earl Grey podcast on Trek FM. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended all-